Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Episode 70, Food, Glorious Food. This podcast is supported by our amazing patrons, such as Octavia. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Aotearoa. Last time, we talked about how manu, birds, were caught and then cooked, as well as a bit about how food was preserved by Māori, including smoking, drying and fermenting. This time, it's mostly just going to be an eclectic mix of how various things were cooked and then eaten. So, grilling was a pretty popular way to cook fish. In the case of Mau Mau, this would involve lighting a fire on a gravel beach, and once the gravel was hot enough, the wood and embers would be swept away and the fish laid over the gravel on sticks. Mau Mau were also said to be so fat that they would cook in their own fatty juices. That could be taken to an extreme though. According to Hiroa, grayling were sometimes too fat, to the point where it would make you sick. He calls them heikakino, a dangerous fish for this reason. But otherwise, he says they are pretty good eating, and quote, possess none of the muddy flavour usually associated with freshwater fish, end quote. Fish and shellfish were often added to meals to add a bit of saltiness, whereas things like raupor pollen or the water from the base of harakeke would be used to add some sweetness. As we have mentioned in the past, what you wrapped your food in was just as important as the food itself, as it would impart flavours during cooking. Often meals would be served on woven harakeke plates, or some other similar plant leaf. As such, even the plates could absorb a bit of oil and juices from the food on them, and depending on what they were made of, the plates were actually edible, or at least biodegradable. When eating, the fingers were the preferred utensil, but in certain circumstances, a pointy stick or a fern stalk would be used. These circumstances could be things like a disability of some kind, or something around tapu restrictions meaning they couldn't use their hands, such as recently having moko done or being an extremely tapu tohunga. That isn't to say no utensils were used though, pointed bones would help get meat out of shellfish, and shells of power or mussels would be used to eat thick liquids, such as a jelly-like food made from tutu berries and karengo seaweed. If shellfish weren't available, as was the case for more inland Māori, dipping fern stalks or the fingers may be done instead for these jelly-like substances. So what about some specific plants? Or even some fungi? Yes, mushrooms and their cousins were very much on the menu as well for Māori, such as hakeke or ear fungus, which would often be cooked in a hangi and eaten with puha, and maybe a few kumara. It grows on trees in mountainous areas and wasn't very highly regarded, usually only being eaten when other options had been exhausted. Though, they did have some medicinal value in curing those who had been poisoned by karaka berries. Another type of fungi that was eaten was matakupinga, or basket fungus. This is a species of fungus that starts out rather compact and then explodes into this nice basket-looking formation. Although this basket looks pretty cool, it has a pretty horrid-smelling slime oozing out of it, in which contains the spores. Eating the matakupinga when it has matured has been known to make people sick, so it can only be eaten before it has quote-unquote popped, which is pretty much as soon as it appeared above ground, so you had to be quick. 
Apparently, the outer skin was quite thick and well-liked, being described as, quote, like a soft potato with a rough brownish skin covering a thick jelly-like mass, end quote. The jelly-like mass wasn't eaten, though, just the skin, which would be roasted over a fire and often given to those who were sick. However, it was not known to have any medicinal properties, so it could have just been that it was easy to eat. Along with fungus, there is a bunch of green leafy plants that were eaten as well. Ponyu, or marshcress, was a leafy plant that was quote, boiled and eaten as cabbage, end quote. Which is kinda interesting, cause ponyu is part of the Brassicaceae family, the same one that broccoli, cauliflower, kale, cabbage, and a whole host of others come from. In marshcress's case, it was used as an antiscorbutic by Cook when they were low on fresh food. That's just a fancy way of saying that it prevents scurvy, which, I'm sure we all know, was an ever-present danger for long-sailing voyages. In fact, Europeans in general were quite impressed with the medicinal properties, saying, quote, The use of these plants restored to health the members of our crew who were the most dangerously ill, even the ones who could hardly crawl along. One sailor in particular, whose body was swollen all over, and whose mouth was absolutely rotten, was carried on land two or three times, and by eating nothing but these herbs, he got well enough to go on the voyage, end quote. It was also said to have a strong smell, and a hot flavour. From land cabbage, there was also sea cabbage, or karingo, or paringo, depending on where you were from. We've talked about paringo in the past when talking about trying to catch kehe, but it was also something that was eaten by humans as well as fish. Often it would be lightly boiled or steamed, but it could also be dried in the sun to the point where it would crack easily in the hand. If dried, it would be put into harakeke baskets to be stored, or it could even be traded to iwi that lived inland for stuff that coastal iwi couldn't obtain easily, such as kiridu. Paringo, along with other seaweeds, could also be mixed with tutu petals and their juice, which would be boiled prior to remove the poison from them. This would make a dark, jelly-like substance that was stored in gourds, which would be used as a laxative for medicinal purposes. A bit further in the future, Paringo was sent to Māori troops in World War I and World War II, particularly those serving in the Middle East, which is where the Māori contingent and the famous 28th Battalion, more commonly known as the Māori Battalion, served a significant amount of time. The reason for this was due to the intense heat in that region, so it helped cool them off and was said to be quite refreshing. One I mentioned before was Puha. And if you're from Aotearoa and either Māori or have a bit of an interest in edible bush foods, this is probably one that you've heard of before. Known in English as sow thistle, the leaves and stems could be eaten raw or cooked, as well as the juice from it being drunk. Often it was eaten with fish, with the stems being bruised and washed to get rid of the bitter juice before cooking. The juice itself could also be rubbed on the hand until it became a bit more solid to make a sort of chewing gum which would have a bitter taste that would disappear after a few chews to leave a, quote, special, long-lasting flavour, end quote. The juice itself could also be mixed with sap from other plants or trees as part of the tāmoko ink, or to just change the flavour of the chewing gum. The chewing gum would be kept in containers in the whare, or buried in the leaves of the koremiko plant for later use. Apparently, chewing this gum was a popular pastime, Quote, especially by women who vied with each other in seeing who could make their pia, gum, 
crack the loudest, end quote. The juice could also be used for medicinal purposes, such as a gentle laxative. Nowadays, there are both native and exotic puha in Aotearoa, as Europe brought its own species of sow thistle. Mamaku, or black tree fern, is quite common all across Aotearoa. You've probably seen it if you've been out into the bush. To eat it, the inner core of the trunk would be baked and the mature leaves boiled. The only problem with this, with taking out the middle of the trunk, is that it would pretty much kill the plant, which meant that this action was protected under various tapu to ensure that people weren't just destroying mamaku willy-nilly. Once the trunk was extracted, it would be pierced with a toki and left for a bit, allowing the sap to drain out of it, which was apparently quite bitter. The trunk would then be cut up into workable chunks. The leaves would be prepared by taking off the little pointy projections on them. This was done by putting them into a stream and rubbing them gently. Once the trunk and leaves were properly prepared, they would be put into a hangi with rangiora leaves laid on top and a flax mat on top of that. Then the whole thing was buried as normal. To cook mamaku, the volcanic rocks at the bottom of the hangi weren't covered in water, as they normally were to steam the food. In this case, they were left alone to bake the mamaku for 12 hours, at which point they would be dug up and left to cool. The trunk would then be further split up using mussel shells, scraping it into bowls before drying and storing. Alternatively, it could be sliced up thinly and threaded onto muka to hang up and dry. According to some Pākehā, mamaku tasted like dried apple, and Charles Heafy even made a tart from it, along with vines, sugar, and some spices, which tasted kind of like a baked apple tart. Others in Wellington made jam from the tree fern, while some in Northland used it for pie fillings. As for Māori, they ate it cold, and since it was slightly acidic, it was seen as a good complement to the sweet tutu berry. Another veg you may have heard of before is mōku, or māoku, depending on where you are. In English, it is called hen and chicken fern, or mother spleenwort, which is just a horrible-sounding name in my opinion. Although, you probably haven't heard it under any of these names. Most would know it as pikopiko. It's a native fern to Aotearoa that is eaten when it's in its small shoot stage, when it's a little green spiral kind of thing. It would be steamed in a hangi to make up the veggie greens portion of a meal, and would later be replaced by European cabbage. Though, it could also have been used to add some zest to foods. As I understand, it possibly has a peppery or maybe a citrusy flavour, I might be wrong on that. It was also apparently a good source of sustenance, as the rangatera, rangiheita, was said to have survived only on pikopiko when he was on the run in the bush. No was another plant that Cook used to prevent scurvy, and as such, in English, it was aptly named Cook's scurvy grass. Māori would boil it and sometimes eat it in a similar manner as cabbage, though No had more of a, quote, characteristic bitter-hot nip, end quote, which was fairly common among native New Zealand plants. Currently, this plant is considered nationally endangered, possibly due to the introduction of browsing animals, like cows, goats, and sheep. From the Nico palm tree, the immature flowers and berries would be eaten, but the heart of the leaves, where they grow from, was the part that was the most desired, and could be eaten raw. The problem with taking the heart, called a rito, 
was the same as taking the inner trunk of the mamaku. It would kill the plant, so it wasn't done all that often. Niko tended to be steamed in a hangi instead of cooked in embers, as the latter wouldn't cook it enough. Apparently, the tree had a slight laxative property and would be fed to pregnant women to help induce labour. When not eaten as a medicine, it was sometimes accompanied by eel. One guy by the name of John Joliffe ate Rito in 1851 and said it was, quote, very good to eat, either raw or cooked. When raw, it tastes like chestnut, sweet, white, and crisp. When boiled, it is an excellent vegetable. It is also eaten uncooked and mixed with a salad, end quote. While another man called William Hay said it was, quote, like celery and coconut in combination. It is refreshing and wholesome. End quote. Ropor is something we mentioned way back in the social structure episodes, where we talked about its use in the construction of fade. That wasn't their only use though, as it could also be eaten, particularly as young shoots, either raw, steamed, or boiled. Roots could be dug up from about two metres down, and the outer skin removed, with the taste being described as, quote, not unlike flour mixed with cream, end quote, as well as, quote, mild and refreshing, end quote. The roots could be made into a porridge-like substance called rerepe, which would be made by pounding them and putting them into boiling water. It was said to have tasted like sweet corn. The pollen would also be eaten, either raw or made into cakes, Ponga Ponga bread would be made by collecting the pollen in baskets, wrapping it in leaves, and putting it into a hangi. This would form a solid yellow mass, which tasted sweet. The pollen could also be eaten with mashed beetles and grubs to be steamed. One source even claimed that ropor was an aphrodisiac for women. Rimurapa, bull kelp, is one we've also talked about a bit in regards to storing titi, mutton bird. However, it could be eaten on its own as well, most often by Māori in the South Island. It would be cooked in a fire before being soaked in a stream to help remove any of the blackened parts, and then eaten. Children were told not to cook the kelp on the days that men went out in the waka to fish, as this would cause the wind to blow, potentially putting them in danger. Rimurapa could also be turned into a jelly by soaking it in fresh water to get the salt out, dried and then mixed with tutu berry juice. We couldn't have a discussion about food and cooking without once again looking at the king of the Māori diet, kumara. Kumara was really diverse in its preparation. It could be baked in the embers of a fire, boiled in salt water, or dried in the sun, among many many other ways. Often it was served with garnishes of some sort of fish, either dried or boiled. When kumara was boiled, the whole thing would be chucked into the hue, stem, roots and everything else, with the leftover water being applied to pimples and other skin conditions to alleviate them, or it was drunk to counter fevers. When kumara was dried, it was called kao and required a fair amount of effort to prepare. The best and biggest tubers were selected when they were about two-thirds ripe and kept in a rua until they were properly dry. They would then be taken out and the skin scraped off with a shell or a piece of supplejack and dried once again, this time on a platform in the sun, making sure to turn them each day and cover them up at night. Once dried again, 
they would be steamed in a hangi for 12 to 16 hours. Though, they had to be careful that the kumara wasn't too dry, else it would crumble at this stage. But if, after steaming it, it was too soft, the kumara could simply be dried again. Once done, they could be stored, wrapped in a mokimoki fern to impart a unique flavour and left until the winter. When winter came around and the kaal was pulled out to eat, it would be softened in a fire, crumbled and mixed with water to make a kind of porridge-like substance, which you've probably noticed is a bit of a theme here. Alternately, it could be pounded into cakes. Kaal could also be eaten as a sweet during feasts, or taken on long journeys as a snack that would travel well. It was also given to those who were very sick, often as the first meal after someone had recovered from a fairly bad illness. Depending on the iwi, the roots were used in slightly different ways. Te Arua, for example, would pound them to make a drink, whereas other iwi preferred to use the roots to make a cake, serving it with a garnish of tea koka root, eating it kinda like a cracker with cheese. Next time, we will be doing another, as yet undecided, dramatic retelling of a Māori legend. After that, we will be moving into a new topic. It's got to be all about unadulterated fun, with the games they played in their spare time, from sports games to children's games, and even board games. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can find my email and social media on historyaotearoa.com. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. You can also find helpful resources there, like transcripts, sources, and translations for some of the Te Reo Māori we have used. This podcast is a one-man band. If you enjoy listening to me talk history, you can support us through Patreon, buy merch, or give us a review. It means a lot, and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, hari tu atu, hoki tu mai. See you next time.